And I do want to encourage you to pick up a t-shirt, a Dream Bigger t-shirt, because I think that's kind of the theme of of Ephesians. I'll I'll walk you through some of this in just a few moments, but uh, it just really is a message to the church in particular, but also all of us individually, to think differently about our great God and our role with His great calling on our lives. And so I'm going to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the one in the pew rack in front of you and turn to page 918. And if you don't personally have a Bible, uh, take the one from the pew and uh, let it be your own. It's a gift from West Lynchburg to you because our desire is that people have the Word of God, read the Word of God, meditate upon that Word, and apply it in their lives. God's Spirit uses the Word of God to pierce our hearts, change our minds, and ultimately transform our lives and those around us. So the theme verses, and it's really the segue between the first half of the book to the second half, is at the end of chapter 3. And I want us to to kind of narrow into those two verses in uh, uh, Psalm 3, verse 20 and 21, because that's where I'm I'm launching the thought of dream bigger. You think, what what does dream bigger mean, and where do I get that kind of thought? Is that even biblical? well, I want, you, I want you to look at your, with your own eyeballs at the passage in, in your scriptures there. And I read out of the New American, or not New American Standard, that was my typical uh, translation, but I, I read out of the English Standard Version uh, now. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now to him, that's talking about God himself, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just go back into that passage just for a moment. I want you to see it. It's God who is able, and He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we... And let me be an amplified version of the Bible for a moment. Uh, amplified doesn't mean just louder, though some of you think I'm already too loud. Amplified Bible was mean they would take uh, the word and add like five other thesaurus words for you to help. And I look at this and I go, ask. That's got to be our prayers. What are we asking of God? Do we limit our prayers to what we think is, is uh, doable or what we think God can do? Do we ask for God for healing when we know the doctors of ours said there's no hope? Do we ask God to heal marriages when we think uh, there, there's nothing that can happen to, to solve this? When we're in financial crisis, do we ask in a way that only God can do something, but we believe enough to ask of Him because we trust a sovereign God to do His perfect will, and we don't limit our minds and our asking? And you look at this next part, it says, you've got to be, He can do far more about than all we can ask and all uh, that we can think Imagine, dream. Now, I don't know about you, but I've prayed some big prayers in the past, and I can dream some pretty big things. And this verse tells me God can do far more beyond that. You know what we can dream? We typically dream something a little beyond what we're used to. Okay, maybe if, if, if this has happened, maybe, maybe, maybe this can happen now. And, and God's just telling you right in this verse The way God works through His church and through His people is far beyond what your mind can even imagine. You know, when we study uh, the the New Testament about heaven, and we just imagine what it's like, you know, there was a a famous song, uh, you know, I can only imagine. That's right, you can only imagine because guess what? You cannot really see until you've seen it, until you're there. 
And then it's going to blow every one of our minds because all of us have limited thoughts, limited prayers, limited imaginations. And so in this passage that Paul writes to us, it's essential that we begin to grasp the greatness of God and begin to ask and think, dream, His size answers and not our little mind and our capability answers. Throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul uses language that leads me to, to see this is not just one verse, it's his entirety of thought. Listen to the language that Paul uses throughout uh, the book of Ephesians. He uses the word lavished, immeasurable greatness, great might, far above all, immeasurable riches, built, rooted, grounded, breadth, length, height, and depth surpasses far more abundantly according to the measure of Christ's gift. And how big is that measurement? Building up, measure to the, of the stature of the fullness of Christ, far above all the heavens, grow up. And how large is that growth? Builds itself up. This and, and many other words throughout the book this is a short book, only six chapters, uh, only I think about 155 verses. It, it's amazing in such a short place how big the doctrine and duties are in this book. Paul writes this great letter, the great apostle Paul, and you may be thinking, well, who is Paul? Well, Paul is an apostle called of Jesus Christ, and he's leading the early church. He was Saul walking on the road to Damascus. And he's going to persecute uh, uh, believers in Christ because he's Jewish. And he's trying to protect uh, the, the pharisaical position of what Christ was about. And on his uh, road, he, uh, on his road to, uh, uh, to, to, to capture people and throw them in jail or perhaps even kill them, God gets a hold of him and Christ confronts him, blinds him, leads him to faith humbly. And Paul, or Saul, uh, uh, completely converts to Christ. Later they call him Paul as he's partnered with Barnabas and begins to go on some missionary journeys. His interaction with the the area of Ephesus, uh, which is now Turkey, he traveled to Ephesus on his second and his third missionary journeys. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18 and 19 to see kind of the, uh, the interactions there. Turkey or Ephesus was was the home to the temple of the great uh, the great Greek goddess Artemis, and though some opposed Paul's message everywhere he went, this particular area too, many did come to faith because he preached the truth, the gospel, and they came to faith in Christ. Well, many years later, around sixty or sixty one A.D., Paul wrote this letter back to the church of Ephesus as a circular letter. A circular letter means it's to go to them, but through them as well. Send this letter on. After you've read it to the congregation, send this to the other churches throughout. Meaning Paul wanted everyone to read this because this is not just truth for a specific church. It's a truth for the church for all time that we capture the essence of the greatness of God and what he's doing through his church. Jesus Christ died for the church because his glory is going to be shined through the church. That's the emphasis of Ephesus. And Paul wrote this book of Ephesians while he was under Roman imprisonment. It's amazing that he writes with such eloquence and passion and vision 
while he's a preacher in chains. How is it that you can be in chains with the Praetorian Guard and still see the greatness of God and the greatness of what God is doing through his church? This is what we have to capture in his words as the Spirit inspired him. As I mentioned earlier, Paul basically writes in two primary positions of of Ephesians. The first three chapters are primarily about the doctrine of God. You can't see the greatness of the church until you've seen the greatness of the God who established the church. And then as it transitions into chapter 4, it's talking about the duty of people. How do we respond to what we know about God? You can see it in the first three chapters, the position of a Christian. Based on the greatness of God, what is our position? And then the last three chapters, what is our practice as a Christian? How do we respond and live out the greatness of the position God has placed us in? Today, we're just going to take a bird's eye view of Ephesians. Kind of hit the highlights, but I think it's going to help us focus in on on what we need to capture as we walk verse by verse through this this book over the next several weeks, perhaps months. We're going to see the greatness of God, and we're going to dream bigger. There are three key sections in Ephesians that I want to point out today. It has to do with where you sit, how you walk, and where you stand. Those three words are used in Ephesians, and that, that jumps off the page to me when I'm reading through it. And when I saw those words originally when I was studying this years ago, you know, where we're seated, how we walk, and where we stand makes a difference. And it threw my thoughts back to Psalm chapter 1. We preached through Psalms this summer, and I know that was such a blessing. But some of you have memorized Psalm one, let me read these words to you, and because I believe Paul was inspired in his writing for Ephesians from Psalm 1, as well as several other Old Testament passages I'll point out over the next several weeks. Psalm chapter 1 says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Where you walk makes a difference. And a wise individual, a righteous person, a blessed person is not somebody who walks in the counsel of the wicked. They're going to walk in the counsel of God. And we're going to see that in chapter 4 of Ephesians. It also says, nor stands in the way of sinners. Where you stand makes all the difference. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us that we stand strong in the counsel of the Lord. And then he closes up there in verse 1, and nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We'll see in in chapter 1 and chapter 2 where Christ is seated and where those who have been redeemed by him sit positionally for eternity. These are great words because the psalmist says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. I pray that over the next several uh, weeks, months, that you'll pray and you'll meditate upon the words that God has revealed to us through the book of Ephesians because I believe it will transform your mind and your heart and your life. And the world around you, the people you interact with, will be uh, uh, jarred by someone who's, who's overtaken by the words that are presented here. 
So let's, let's put these three things, and, and not just the, the, the sit, walk, and stand. I want you to begin to see in the Scriptures where you, or who you think you are. We need to dream bigger about our identity. When we talk about dreaming bigger, you got to understand, we got to dream big about God, but because of who God is, it changes who we are if we're a follower of Christ. We are separate from God. We are unholy, we are sinful, we are completely separated from Him unless He does something for us, which is provide salvation as we have faith in His, the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice back in Ephesians chapter 3 where it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Us, plural, he defines who us is here in the next verse. Verse 21, to him be the glory in the church. All those who are redeemed in Christ are a part of the church. So therefore, our identity is not individualistic. Our identity is in Christ as the church. Not the building, but the people of God, the body of Christ. And, and the church is not just our generation. You notice in verse 21, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. As we see this, and we see that we have a much larger family than you can imagine. There are people beyond, you know, uh, before us for generations that have followed Christ. You don't know their name. You don't know what they look like. They didn't wear a name tag but they're a part of our family. When we join Christ, it's not just about our salvation. We're joining a family. We're joining a body. We're joining a movement. We're joining a generation after generation of God's glory. That's a bigger identity than you can imagine. I want you to see in chapter 1 some of the the words that that Paul writes here. In verse 1 of chapter 1, What does he say? Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. It was God who called Paul. Paul wasn't seeking the position of apostle. He wasn't even seeking the position of of believer in Christ. But but God uh, confronted him and, and called him and transformed his life. And now, not only is he a follower of Christ, he's an apostle, a leader for Jesus Christ by the will of God. And it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What is a saint? How many of you came out of a Catholic background? Just a show of hands. There's more than you can imagine. Yeah, there's a lot. So you understand, you know, I mean, sainthood is a big deal in the Catholic faith. You know, who, who are the saints? Saints literally mean holy ones, set apart ones, different than everything else and everyone else. Paul starts with the highest view of these people. But he says to the saints, plural, he says, the saints, not just individual ones, a a select few out of the church. Have you ever considered yourself a saint? Oftentimes, Christians say, well, I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. True statement. Have you ever said, I'm just a saint by the grace of Christ? Well, how can I be a saint? Well, have you been redeemed by Him? Have you been made holy? Not perfection in how you live all the time, but positionally, are you a saint? Did God redeem you? Did He pay the penalty for your sin, past, present, and future? 
Your identity is a saint when you're in Jesus Christ. He's not writing to a select few. He's writing to the entire church. If you've been redeemed by Christ, if you have faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you are now considered, your identity is a holy one, a set-apart one, a saint. I want you to look at the words here. How do you become a saint? These words I want you to pick up on several times in this uh, first chapter. When these words are attached to you, that they identify you, you're a saint. The words in Christ or in him. Are you in Christ or are you in him? Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, plural, the church, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, set apart for him in love. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Have you been forgiven of your sins? Have you trusted him and say, God, I can't clean myself up, but oh, by your grace, would you forgive me? Of my sin. It's just the mere asking, and he will do far more abundantly than all you can imagine. Could he forgive you? You might be saying, Well, Chris, you don't know my past. You you don't know some of the things I've thought, some of the things I've said, some of the things I've done. I don't need to know all of it because I know what God has done for me. Because not all of you know all of my past either. And God has, has said, If I can save a soul, who is on the edge of throwing people into prison and trying to hurt them or even have them killed because of the faith, if I can save him and forgive him, I can certainly save you and cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness. This is an identity issue that we've got to capture. It's much bigger than we think. Are we in him? Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of his grace. That's the only way. Grace is unmerited favor. He's giving something that we don't deserve. People say, well, I'll try to clean my life up in order to receive God's favor. Listen, just abandon your life. Give it all to Christ and let him clean you up. Follow him and he'll make you clean. Look at verse 9 making us known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Without Christ, there's no hope. But in Christ, we have fullness of forgiveness and full blessing. In verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. We, plural, the church, those who are in Christ, have an inheritance, nothing that we have earned nothing we've deserved, but out of his great grace, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The heavenly Father before the foundation of the world set the plan. Christ entered into the world to to take the penalty that we all deserve. Sinless, yet he took on our sin and the penalty. And sinful, he gives you full grace. And he restores you to a proper relationship, a righteous relationship to the Father. And the Holy Spirit steps in and seals that promise till the day of redemption. 
the entire Trinity is involved and who we become in Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead, that was our identity. We were dead, spiritually separated from God. In verse 3, it says, by nature, we were children of wrath, totally opposed to the things of God. God God, uh, was angry at our sin. And then verse 4, the two precious words of Ephesians, but God. The only hope we have in our deadness and our our wrath-filled nature is God, who was being rich in mercy, mercy, withholding what we deserve, grace giving us what we don't deserve because of the great love with which he loved us. God loves us even while we were still sinners. We're unloving and unlovable. And even in the midst of that, God loves us. This is the identity that we have in Him. In verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together, the church, with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace. And I I, I see this in the Scriptures. The dream of chapter 3 begins... When Christ is in. When we are in Christ, we can ask bigger. We can can think higher because we've seen God do a miraculous work right here in our own mind and heart. And here, I, I don't want you to miss this now. So what happens when you're in Christ? I'll bring in this word seated. I want you to first look at chapter 1, verse 20. Where's Christ seated who's done all this great work? It says that he worked in Christ in verse 20 of chapter 1. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So God the Father had the plan for salvation. Christ worked that salvation after he completed the task. He goes to heaven. He ascends there. He's preparing a place for us. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's his position. That's where he is. But if we're in Christ, what does that mean for us? I want you to go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 6. What has he done? It says we, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Some of you are English majors. But even if you're at least a third grade English uh, person, I want you to look back at verse 6 and tell me if it's past tense, present tense, or future tense. What is it? What? How many say it's future tense? How many say it's present tense? How many think it's past tense? The ED is typically past tense. Now, none of us are in heaven today. But if it says in verse 6 that he has redeemed us, he, he saved us by his grace, the richness of his mercy, and he has seated us, that's past tense. That tells me that positionally, we're already there. Our identity is already in Christ. 
And so our, our position is held, sealed by the Holy Spirit, according to chapter 1. Our identity is not one day we might be seated with Christ. No, positionally we are seated with Christ because His work is finished. So it's not that we continue to seek and gain and hope something might happen. It's already affected. If you're seated in Christ, now what are you going to do from that seat? I don't think we ask or think quite like the Bible wants us to think. You may think your life doesn't matter. You may think, or maybe you've been told that you won't amount to much of anything. You may have been defeated by others or or even your own sin and failures. But I see in this great book and and all of the, the New Testament, God is bigger than your past. God is bigger than your problems. God is bigger than your pain. God's even bigger than your limited plans that you can come up with. God is bigger than any position this world will give you, any titles, any degrees. All of that is helpful, but it's so much smaller than your identity when you're in Christ. The greatest seat you'll ever have is being seated with him. God is bigger than any possession you try to hold on to. God is bigger than any position or identity that you could ever imagine. Your identity as a follower of Christ, Paul gets it right, to the saints. You're a holy one. You're seated in a different spot. You have a different identity. How are you going to live that identity out? If you begin to think like God thinks and and take on the identity that God has given to you, then you're going to live differently. You're going to talk differently. You're going to interact with people differently. Your position is seated with Christ himself in the heavenly places. So what does that affect? This is where we move into the second portion of of Ephesians, where he says that you must dream bigger for your ability. If you're seated with Christ, you've been in Christ, he's transformed your life, what does that mean? Ephesians chapter 3, go back to that verse for a second, verse 20. Now to him who is able. It's very clear God has the ability But what does it say? He he can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work where? Say it out loud. This is interactive. Let's let's do the the large class lecture. What, What is this? It's in you. Some of us, our biggest challenge is not that we think God is able. Our biggest challenge is our limitation to think he is able to do it through us. You know, is in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus looked at his disciples and he told them to pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. And they're probably going, yeah, Lord, I pray you raise up some workers somewhere. I hope you find them somewhere. And then verse 10, or chapter 10, you know what Jesus does? He says, all right, now all of you go two by two and you're going to go out and share the gospel. You're going to go do what we've been praying for. You're the answer to your own prayers. At the end of the book of Matthew, tells us a lot about ourselves. Matthew chapter 28, oh, the great commission is there, and and, and the disciples are going to be sent out. If you read it very closely in Matthew chapter 28, it says as the disciples were, were with the risen Lord before he ascended, they worshiped and they doubted. How can you have that in the same sentence? You worship and you doubt. 
I think they worshiped God because they knew he was able. He just conquered death. I don't think their doubt was in Christ. I think their doubt was in themselves. He does it, but I mean, Peter, he was the one who was just denying Christ. He doubts he can do anything. Thomas, he he had already doubted. You know, we always give Thomas the bad rep. He was the doubter. Every one of them was a doubter. Going, I don't know. And I believe we are guilty of the same. We limit our ability based on what we see. But God says he is doing far more abundantly than all you can pray for or dream as he works through us. So maybe we ought to get on our knees far more and say, God, what would you do through me if I would stop telling you how far you can go in my life? One of our core beliefs here at West Lynchburg is that we lead by serving, meaning we're led by Christ so we can lead others to Christ by serving them as God directs. Because when we're faithful, He is powerful. Sometimes we don't see the power of God because we are trying to limit what He'll do through us. Say, God, don't use me. I, I, don't, think, I don't think I can do that. No, you can't do it, but God can through you. Would you just be an open vessel, clean vessel, and say, whatever, your will be done in my life. When we're faithfully serving God, He gets the glory. One of the things I, uh, we've been sharing for about three years is Vision 920. Uh, Zach got up here a moment ago and said that. And some of you, yeah, this is the first time you're here, you don't have a clue what that means. And some of you have been here three years, and you say, I'm not sure what that means either. We hear about it all the time, but what does that really mean? Are we backed into that vision in some way? Let me just briefly share. I got here three years ago, August uh, 2020, and uh, the first thing I did, be- began to do a demographic study. What, I didn't know anything about Lynchburg. I knew about Liberty because uh, I had an older son who went there, uh, but uh, uh, we came to Lynchburg based on God's calling. I knew we were supposed to be here. Jennifer and I were in absolute unity on this, and we came, and so I said, well, what is Lynchburg about? What, what does it look like around here? So in the demographic study that I discovered in five-mile radius of our place right here, there are 92,000 people. In the middle of that study, I also find out that 25% of the population actually attends a, a church, mosque, or, or, a, or synagogue of some sort. They have some type of religious faith, 25%. That means 75% are basically nuns. They've given up on religion, or they never really engaged, and so there's a lot of lostness in this, this area. But 92,000 people also discover there's about 100 churches in that five-mile radius. We are churched, but we're not saved. And there's actually 104, but I, I, I was praying, uh, as before I shared a message, I was praying, uh, Lord, if there's 100 churches, I want every church to succeed. I want every church to preach the gospel and reach people. And if you just gave us 1% of that 92,000 people, that would be 920. We're not in competition with other churches. Actually, I'm trying to help other churches go, how, how do you begin to refocus on reaching people with the gospel? So 920, if you would just give us 920 and give Chestnut Hill 920 and give Sandusky uh, 920 and, and give uh, Keystone 920, then we'd begin to, to make an impact in this community. Would you give it to us? And then that just kind of resonated, and it became, that's our goal. Now, is our goal to reach 920 people? No. Our goal is to reach everybody in the community. If we can help every church reach everybody in the community and, and we let see, people see the gospel and the power of God. But one of the things that identified it is 920 is beyond us. We can't see 100 or 920 people in this building. 
So it's beyond us. Well, could we ever get there? We can't, but I know God can. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever think or imagine. Some people said I was crazy when I got here. That's fine. You know, I think the world needs to see more craziness from Christians who believe in a God who can do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or imagine. I think that the world's looking at churches that are dying going, is this a representation of how great your God is? You talk about how great God is, but look at what, you just don't seem to, you don't pray very big, you don't, you don't, you don't act very big, you know, and it's not about us, it's all about His glory, because when, ultimately when we do God's work, and, and He works through us, it's really Him, it's far beyond what we could do, and then what does the pastor say? It, he gets all the glory. Oh, may we be a church that actually believes what God wrote in His Bible and begins to live out the vision of what He's given us. Our past three years, we've seen some very intentional connections to the community. Let me do this quick, and I know I'm already over, but it's well worth our time, let me just say. We've gone door-to-door to offer prayer support during the, uh, the pandemic, uh, invite people to worship. Well, July 4th, we've had 600 people on our front lawn that just got to come and interact, and was, many of them were prayed for. Uh, uh, the fall festival, the egg hunt, a partnership with the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center. We hosted T.C. Miller Elementary School when they had no building to meet in for three and a half weeks on our campus when a public school was willing to come on to a, a church campus, and we loved them like we desired and you know, needed to. Uh, and this year, we're going to serve the teachers at their, their location uh, and uh, serve their, uh, their staff lunch if you want to participate in that. And we've already said that EC Glass football team, uh, high school team, is being fed by our church every Friday. And right now, I do want you to pray about this. This is an important thing. Uh, when I got here, I said, we have a big building that stays empty most of the week. But one of the greatest needs in our community is, is, uh, is preschool care. And, and we had a team in the first year kind of looking at that, but it just seemed insurmountable. And then we've been approached by the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, who has some grant funds that said, you've been identified as a great location where the greatest need is uh, for, or for school readiness for three- and four-year-olds, five-year-olds before they go into school. Would you be open to having your building used five days a week to bring families from this community who need child care, and not child care, babysitting, but school readiness, preparation. We've been in talks with them. I think it's a great idea, but I need the plurality of wisdom of our church to just determine if this is a good uh, connection. Next Sunday night, put it on your calendar, at 6 p.m., we're going to meet in this room or down in the chapel, depending on the size group that shows up. I'm having the leaders of the YMCA come to explain what their, uh, uh, their proposal is, in a sense. We, we're in the early stages of what this needs to look like, but they're going to come and answer some questions for us. We'll do a, 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 a question and answer sheet prior to, to get it into your hands so you can begin to look over that. What would it look like for us to partner? And there's a lot of, there's thousands of questions I know you might have in your mind right now. We'll take time to answer those. One thing that we will not give up is our position and desire to evangelize our community. This is not a secular Christian, you know, let's, let's use the building but not intersect. No, this is a ministry opportunity for us to interact with families in our community directly. And so that's a promise. We're not going to budge on that, and they know that. And they said, we welcome it. That's exciting to me. We might reach hundreds of families this way. 
just like we're reaching other families in different ways. That's part of the the 92,000 people in our community that need to hear the gospel. Let me skip through. I'll, I'll hit some of these things later. The last thing I wanted to say was dream bigger for your stability. In verse 10 of chapter 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Do you stand with the, with the scoffers or do you stand against them on the word of God, against the schemes of the devil? This stand is stronger than a hurricane that could not blow you through because you're built, you have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. At the beginning of this year, I challenged our church. I said, we're going to continue to be outward focused. What can we do to reach our community and not just see salvation? We want to make disciples. We want to grow people up in the faith. If you're in Christ, then you're going to grow up into him who is the head, Christ. And so I said, uh, I pray we have a hundred more people sitting in, uh, in our church and interacting with our ministries right here. I said, I want, I want to have, see a thousand ministry touches in our community that we can identify. T.C. Miller was one, and, and our July 4th, and uh, Fall Festival is coming and all, and we we're already well over exceeding a thousand different touches, evangelistic touches. And I said, for us to be able to do that, we need to raise about $100,000 more than our budget because there's far more that we need to do. And I know that may be a stretch for some, and, and this is not a capital campaign. This is just a, an appeal. If we're going to make an impact, we've got to have some resources to do so. And so I, I want to finish the year strong, and I'm going to challenge all of us. Keep, keep sharing the faith. Keep inviting people to church. Keep, keep going out and, and telling people about Jesus and then where they can grow in Christ. And also keep giving at a level that is far beyond what you could imagine and trust the Lord will sustain you and actually bless you in that. It was Alexander the Great who was one of the greatest military generals in history and he nearly conquered the entire known world in his lifetime and one night during a campaign he couldn't sleep so he began to walk around camp. As he was walking, he came across a young soldier that was asleep, that he was on guard duty, but asleep. A serious offense. And the penalty for following asleep as a guard uh, was, in some cases, instant death. The commanding officer sometimes poured kerosene on the sleeping soldier and would light it just to wake him up. Well, you got Alexander the Great who saw this young soldier and he approached him. He shook him. The young man recognized Alexander the Great and stood up before him, fearing for his life. And Alexander the Great said this, Do you know what the penalty is for falling asleep on guard duty? Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, Yes. He says, Son, what is your name? The young soldier said, Alexander. Alexander repeated the question, What is your name? Sir, my name is Alexander, sir. A third time, and even more loudly, Alexander asked, Alexander Great asked, What is your name? A 
third time, the soldier meekly said, my name is Alexander, sir. And he looked at, Alexander the Great looked him in the eyes. He says, then you better live up to your name. See, that was Alexander the Great's name. And he had to live up to it. If you're going to have an identity, if you're going to have a name, you better live up to it. And don't fall asleep. And I look at that and I go, we are believers in Christ. We are redeemed. We are saints. We've been called to live differently. If we're going to call ourselves the church, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we better live up to the 